ahead and read the passage uh, and then give our introductory remarks. But Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be considering verses 1 through 7 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Our Father in heaven, we do just come before you uh, this morning, and we would just ask that you would uh, quiet our hearts um, Father, that you would help us to see all that is in your word that you would have us see this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and, and the fact, Father, that you have given it to us to make yourself known to us. And Father, when we consider these verses uh, as we see uh, how Paul recognizes the Philippian believers for how they were so zealous in so many ways, Father, we just ask that you would help us to see the ways in which we can improve in our zeal for you. But Father, we just ask that you would speak directly to our hearts uh, that you would help us to um, become more like the Lord Jesus Christ and less like ourselves because of what we've heard from you this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you uh, were here in, what was that, like three weeks ago, uh, we considered the background to this book uh, of the Philippians. Uh, we considered um, Acts 16 briefly and how the church came to be established. And um, I made the argument to you, or at least I tried my best, maybe, I, maybe it wasn't a very good argument, but I tried my best to uh, show that the, the believers of Philippi were perhaps the closest church to the Apostle Paul. And he even says that. Um, you could you could say, well, Paul was also close to Ephesus. You know, there's that passage in Acts where he's weeping with the elders before he says goodbye and all of those things. He was close to them as well. But the Philippians were uh, particularly close to the Apostle Paul. Uh, they loved him. They supported him multiple times. In fact, uh, Paul says in, in Philippians 4.15, he praises the Philippians and he says, No church has shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. And that was a common fact. He says, you already know this is true. You're the only ones who have supported me. Um, Paul had received many gifts from the, uh, many financial gifts from the Philippian believers. Um, the idea is after uh, he went from Philippi, he was chased out because of um, an uproar amongst the people. He then goes to Thessalonica. And he mentions in Philippians chapter 4 that they had gathered some money and followed him to Thessalonica to give him money. And then you see in Philippians 4 as well that as he leaves Macedonia as a whole, they send him another gift. And so so um, time goes on. Paul continues in his ministry, continues in, in giving the gospel in various loca- locations. And um, at least as far as we know, the financial support of the Philippians seems to have ceased to an extent. Uh, because as far as we know in Scripture, there was a time in which he didn't hear from them or receive any gift from them. But here, as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, we understand that he is imprisoned in Rome, and uh, it is there that he has the um, the freedom to be to have both visitors come to him to preach the gospel, 
Uh, and we mentioned how uh, as he's there in prison for two years in Rome, he decides to write letters like the Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, and, and it's believed that he's writing this letter to the Philippians because they sent him another gift. Um, six years had passed since he had heard from them, as, at least as far as we know. And he receives this gift from the Philippians. And so he takes the opportunity to write this letter to them, to thank them. Um, but it's also believed, again, a lot of details. Okay, but it's important that we know these details. Um, it's also believed that as they sent a man called Epaphroditus to Paul to give him this gift, he also got a report from the Philippians. Maybe it was a letter from Epaphroditus. Maybe it was just a word of mouth from Epaphroditus. But basically what Paul was informed of was the fact that they were still zealous for the gospel, still going on strong for the Lord Jesus, but there was an issue with two sisters. And uh, we mentioned how um, these two sisters are mentioned in, in um, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. He calls them out specifically by name, Yodia and Sintaichi. Beautiful names. There are a lot of, you know, babies being born. We should consider those names. Yodia, Sintaichi. Uh, beautiful names. But uh, there's this, this, this problem with these two ladies. We have no idea what it's about. We have no idea what it's, what it's around. But there's this two uh, ladies that are, that are having an issue with one another. And, and, and I mentioned how uh, as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, 10 years had passed from the point of the church being established to when he's writing this letter. So 10 years, that's quite a while. They, they continued to be fervent for the gospel. They were seeing souls saved. 10 years is enough time to see a second generation be saved for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so he calls out these two ladies, Yodi and Sintaichi, for a conflict that is between the two of them. But there's a potential that it wasn't just a problem with two ladies. Um, if you just look around our circles and how things are, what if Yodia was best friends with Lydia? Or what if Sintaichi was best friends with the Philippian jailer's wife? Again, that's speculation. But when, whenever in our circles, in our families, when there's a feud, when there's a disagreement, oftentimes it starts with just two people. But it really grows to be multiple groups of people. And so Paul is addressing this issue. And I want you to read verse 27 of chapter 1. I, I mentioned last week how this is really, I believe, the key to understanding what Paul is addressing or what's going through his mind as he's writing this letter Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Again, this is all review, but very important. Uh, Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, and notice the wording, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so the belief is, as Paul receives this information from Epaphroditus, that there's now disunity in the church, Paul is concerned about one thing. The gospel is going to be affected. And so he he exhorts them in chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, you need to conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. How do we do that? Well, what's the story of the gospel? The story of the gospel is this, that we were sinners that lived in a defiance before a holy and righteous God, and in so doing, we offended him. And yet, but that's not the end of the story. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place, to, to pay the penalty of our sin so that we can be reconciled to God. And so Paul says, take a look at yourselves. If there's a disagreement with two people, you're not reflecting the gospel in your life. Because if there's a disagreement between two people and yet I refuse to forgive the other person, I'm not living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because I once offended God and yet he forgave me through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, you need to conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. 
conduct yourselves in a way that reflects the gospel truth in your life. And uh, we mentioned how uh, disunity is one of the uh, biggest ways to really uh, hinder the Spirit's effectiveness in a meeting. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very prevalent thing. There's one more thing I want to mention. Okay, one more thing. I was trying to remember so many details last month, and as soon as I said amen, like three things came into my mind. It's the worst feeling. You're like, oh. There's one thing that's very important. Okay. Again, review. Um, I mentioned how there are three letters that Paul writes dealing with issues in the church. I guess four, if you include them individually. But you have the letter to the Galatians. Remember, there's an issue there. They've been uh, taken away from the gospel, and he comes out swinging right out the gate. Remember? Normally he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. I love you. I'm praying for you in this way. But you read Galatians. He skips all of that. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians. What's going on? Like, like, why have you been caused to, 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 to believe this lie? You're foolish. And then he, that's the tone he carries throughout the entire book. I mean, it is a heavy book. That, he comes down with a heavy hand. And then you see he writes a letter to First and Second Corinthians dealing with issues in the church, dealing with sin, dealing with a lot of questions. And that, too, carries a strong tone, but it's not as strong as the tone of Galatians. And then you read Philippians. And I mentioned last month, if you read Philippians having no knowledge of what's going on, you would have no idea that there's an issue in the church until you get to chapter 4, verse 2. Because Paul is so tactful, he's so gentle, he's so gracious. And yet here... You have three issues that Paul is addressing to three different churches, and he responds in three different ways. I think that's very important to note because um, some Christians only know the Galatians' tone. For every situation, I'm going to come out swinging. You fool! I mean, that's what he says to the Galatians, and, and they, they come out swinging, and then he talks about in Galatians, I think it's chapter 5, where he says, but if we bite and devour one another, it's that tone that he carries where so many Christians, for every situation, for every issue they face, they only know one tone. I remember growing up, there was uh, always a joke that was made. I hope it was a joke, okay? There's a chance it wasn't a joke. There's a chance that it actually happened, Um but they joked about this church in California that closed because they couldn't agree on what color the carpet was. And you think, what in the world? Are you kidding me? Is that really an issue to close the doors over? And yet it happens all the time in our families. It happens all the time in churches. There's an issue and we blow up. There's this feud. No one's willing to ask for forgiveness. Um, no one's willing to forgive. And what actually happens? The testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ ceases to exist in that church. Um, and so I just think that's very important to know. Some people only know the Galatians' response. And yet here is Paul. He, he deals with three different issues, and he addresses them in three different ways. Why was he so strong in Galatians? Because the gospel was at stake. The gospel was at stake. Paul says, this is a hill I will die on every time. If the gospel is wrong, everything is wrong. And then you come to Philippians. Yes, there's a disagreement. Yes, we need to fix it. But we need to be tactful and loving and gracious and kind to one another in how he addresses this issue. And so I think that's very important. I think it's one of the most important issues or one of the most important lessons that we can learn from Philippians that Paul, as he hears of this dispute, he says the gospel is going to be affected. 
not just in how it looks in your life, but the effectiveness of the Spirit of God in the local church, and you need to fix it. Uh, and this is real. Um, souls are hanging in the balance. Souls are hanging in the balance, and yet if I have an issue with my brother and I refuse to address it, it's not just me that's being affected. It's not just the brother, but it's the effectiveness of really the entire meeting, and it's something that's very important. Uh, there could be people in this room at, at this moment who have had issues that maybe took place yesterday, last month, years ago, whatever the case is. Paul says you need to address it. I mean, these were, if you look, I can't wait till we get to chapter four. But if you look at chapter four, he calls out these ladies and he says, these are ladies who labored with me in the gospel. These are ladies who were zealous over the things of God. They were zealous over souls. They wanted to be used of God. And yet there was an issue between two mature ladies that ended up affecting the whole assembly. And we, we need to, we need to take these things seriously. So I'll leave it there until we get to chapter four. Okay. Um, in these verses one through seven, we're going to see three things uh, that Paul mentions here. The first thing is going to be Paul's position. He then goes on to mention the things that he praises them for. You have Paul's praise. And then finally, um, Paul's progression. But look at verse one. He says, Paul and Timothy, uh, bond servants of Christ Jesus, bond servants of Christ Jesus. If you were to uh, look at how Paul opens every letter that he writes, at least that we have, Almost all of them read the exact same way. Paul, an apostle called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single letter he writes, he mentions that he's an apostle. There is, uh, I think it was Titus and Romans, he also mentions the fact that he's a bondservant. But then after that, or right before it, he mentions that he's also an apostle. Every single letter he writes, he mentions that he's a, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would do this because he needed to establish his authority. That was not his his authority that he claimed. It was authority. It was an authority that was God given to him as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he needed to remind the people that he was speaking on behalf of God as an apostle. But here, he doesn't address himself himself in that way. He says Paul and Timothy, but we're really not that authoritative to these people. We're really bond servants. Here he, he chooses to address himself as a bondservant, um, reminding them not of his authority over them, but reminding him of his uh, position underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't anticipate that the Philippians are going to have an issue really reading this letter. He knows that they love him. He knows that they know that he loves them. And so he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I was really interested when I, when I was looking into this. Um, the, the word here for bondservant is doulos, and there, there are uh, two words that, that you see in the New Testament used for servants. One is a servant, and one is a slave. The word for, for slave is doulos, and so you have to stop and you have to ask, okay, well, what's the difference between a servant and a slave? In our culture, it kind of seems like the same. A servant was different in the sense that he had more freedom than a slave. To an extent, he could come and go how he, how he wished. Yes, he would have tasks and responsibilities, but as long as he filled those tasks and responsibilities, he was able to leave. A slave was not. A slave was viewed as, as, as someone who was owned by their master. He was someone who had no will of his own, someone who did not live for his own desires, but lived to fulfill the desires of his own servant. And that is the word that Paul uses to describe himself. I'm a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you think about how Paul was used so greatly. 
And that's really one of the biggest reasons, I believe, why Paul was so effective in his ministry was because he never forgot who he was in Christ. He never forgot. He never, he had every reason to, to become proud, every reason to take confidence in himself, and yet he always remembered that he was nothing but a servant. Now, there's one more thing, perhaps, why he would he would uh, decide to to uh, identify himself in this way. But you remember in Exodus 21, we won't take the time to look at it, but in Exodus 21, uh, the Lord is giving the laws to Israel on how they were to be applied to to their their servants specifically. Okay, Exodus 21. It's a very uh, a good passage for you to go home and look at because he's looking at um, how the slaves were to be in their society. Okay, so. If, if I were a Hebrew man and I bought a Hebrew slave, that slave was to serve me for six years, okay? That was their contractual agreement. They couldn't be held for longer than that. And then when the seventh year came, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 5, is very clear that that servant had a choice. He could stay and serve his master or he could leave. And, and the whole idea you see in Exodus 21 and verse 5, the reason why this person would stay, he says, I love my master I will not go free. And then he would be titled as a bond servant of that servant. Someone who would serve their master, not out of obligation, but because he loved his master and refused to go free. And so perhaps that's what was going through the mind of, of Paul as he's writing this idea that he's a bond servant of Christ Jesus. He was a man who did not possess a will of his own, but lived only uh, for, the, for the, the will of his master. Uh, the second thing we see is um, he starts to praise them for things. And, and I really struggled with this for days um, and hours yesterday, but the Lord finally worked it out in my mind. Uh, he's praising them, but it's, it's very interesting that he praises them for three different, I guess, periods, okay? So just stay with me. I'll explain it in a second. But he praises them for the past, praises them for the present, and then praises them for the future, okay? So look at verses... Uh, Verse 3, beautiful. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In all my remembrance of you. Um, I always read this verse, and I thought what Paul was saying, every time I think about the Philippians, I thank God for them. That's how I always thought it, that's what I always thought it meant. But if you look at how this is, um, if you were to translate it literally, or you were to look at the thought behind the Greek, what he's saying is, Every memory I have of you Philippians moves me to thanksgiving, moves me to be thankful. Every memory I have. So he, he, here he is, he's sitting in prison and he's writing this letter and he's thinking back on all the memories he has of the Philippians. Some of them not good memories, I imagine. I mean, he was imprisoned there. Uh, he was beaten. There was a mob there. He was eventually forced to leave the city. It doesn't seem like good memories to me, but he, he looks, he, he thinks back uh, of the Philippians and he says, every memory I have of you moves me to be thankful. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary if you think about it. Um, there weren't any issues Paul had to work through in, in the 10 years leading up to this point. Uh, there weren't things he had to correct them on. There weren't things he, he would have to tell them, you're doing well in this area, but I want you to be stronger in the next. This was a church, a rare church, that from the beginning to up to this point was doing well for the Lord. And he says, every time I think about you, Philippians, I just rejoice. I, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Uh, he praises them uh, for, for the past memories. We'll talk more about that in a second. But then he moves in verses 4 through 5, and he praises them for their present, their present participation. 
excuse me, their present participation. Verse 4, he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now. Um, as Paul is thinking upon uh, the Philippians, as he's thinking upon the things in which he's praising them for and the strengths that they have as a church, uh, he, he says, I feel this way of you because of your participation in the gospel. Your participation in the gospel. Now, we, you have to think about this. Uh, this word participation, some of your Bibles will actually read fellowship. It's the word, the most common word for fellowship in scripture, koinonia. And some people will say, actually most people will say that as, as Paul's writing this, this, this idea, because of your participation in the gospel, what he's referring to is the money that they've sent. Okay, and you see that a handful of times the word fellowship is also used. Um, it just means to share something in common. Um, and so the idea is in some passages that, that this word is used to suggest that there is a, a gift involved, a financial gift. Okay. Um, that's why you hear, you hear a lot of, uh, letters, for example. I don't know, Sam, you might have even used it this, le- this morning where he said, thank you for your fellowship. Uh, that, that's the, uh, that's the idea. And some people will say that that is what Paul is referring to here, but I really don't think that is what he's referring to here. And the reason for that is he doesn't mention the gift until the very end of the letter. There's nothing leading up to chapter four that would lead you to believe that he has in it, that he has in his mind this gift that was given to him. But he praises them for their participation in the gospel. Perhaps he was thinking financial, but that wasn't the totality of his thought. But what he's speaking of is how they were zealous for the gospel. They participated in the gospel. Uh, they were zealous in the things of God, uh, just as Paul was zealous. And he says, every time I think of you, it makes my heart rejoice. It makes my heart flutter with thanksgiving because you've participated in the work of the gospel just like I have. For 10 years, for 10 years, Paul looks back and he thinks, you have been zealous for the gospel. Perhaps Paul is thinking about other churches and how they've struggled in, in so many ways. You, I mentioned the Galatian church and how uh, they had gone away from the gospel. And Paul is thinking, has no memories of that with the Philippians. And he just thinks of how zealous they are for the gospel for 10 years. He says, you, you participated in the gospel from the first day until now. There, there was no period of time in which you stopped being zealous for the gospel. There was no period of time in which you, you, you strayed away from the truth and were living for yourself. You were zealous for the things of God. What praise. Uh, what a challenge that is. But, but he says from the first day, from the first day, um, if you, if you read through Acts 16, um, there, there's no time markers as to how long Paul was in Philippi, but a, a lot of people don't estimate that it was longer than a month or two. He wasn't there very long. And yet in that time period, so much happened. People were getting saved. There was a riot. Paul was beaten. Silas was beaten. They were thrown in prison. Can you imagine being the Philippians? They see this take place. Yes, souls are getting saved, but they see what the cost of the gospel is. They're throwing Paul in prison. They tell him to leave. That's the the culture, the environment in which these Philippians are living in. I don't know. For me, the temptation would be to say, okay, well, let's not be as zealous as Paul. I mean, I mean, they just beat him. They just threw him in prison. You know what I mean? 
The temptation would be, uh, you hear about uh, the Americans, when they talk about persecution, they talk about persecution in other, other countries, and it's always with a, almost like a shiver, you know? <sighs> I hope it never comes here, right? And, and that's really our mentality as we think about persecution. Uh, that could have been the Philippians' response, but it wasn't. Paul says, you were zealous in the things of God, you were zealous in the gospel from the first day until now, even if it meant you were persecuted. Now, Paul says it later on in chapter 1. He says it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for his sake. And there they were, suffering for Christ because of the gospel, but they didn't put their foot off the gas. They were zealous in the things of God. They were zealous in the gospel. I was uh, thinking about that, and I just thought, hypothetically speaking, you have to use your imagination, okay? But hypothetically speaking, what would Paul say of this church for the past 10 years? I mean, what what would be his praise? What would be his assessment of the church? For 10 years, what have we been zealous in participating in? What have we really sought to live our lives after? Now, let's get a little more specific. If you had a close relationship with Paul, what would he say about you specifically? For 10 years, what have we spent our lives suffering for, living for, uh, seeking after? Would Paul praise us for the fact that you're zealous for the things that matter in this life? Or would he think, man, you've really wasted a lot of your life? Um, I think about that often. Um, I grew up uh, in a church where there was a lot of old people. We had a, a retirement home just down the street that was owned by a lot of uh, the assemblies in the area, and it was meant for people like missionaries who who served their whole who served the Lord for their whole life. They didn't have money when they got old, and they needed to be taken care of. And I would hear stories from a lot of these old people, and it was just how they did so much for the Lord—people uh, you'd never even hear about—and yet they lived their life so well for the Lord, and yet. I hear stories about some other people who also are old. And yet they look back on their life and all they see, I slaved nine to five every day for a company that really didn't care about me so that I could retire. And they look back and they see in their life that they spent their life living for the things that didn't matter. And I think about that hymn, uh, hymn that, uh, um, must I go empty-handed? Must I go in empty-handed? I love that hymn. It's a beautiful hymn, but it's so challenging because he says, Oh, the years of sinning wasted. Could I but recall them now? I would gladly give them to my Savior and to his service. I'd gladly bow. But must I go in empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Yeah, that was written by a man who um, was was sitting in a pew just like you one Sunday morning. And whoever was speaking that morning was talking about how he had a visitation that week with a young man who had just gotten saved. But he came down with a sickness, and he was told that he had just days to live. And they asked him, they said, how do you feel? Like, what's going through your mind? And he said, I just, I don't want to go empty-handed. 
And here's this man. He writes this hymn and he sees this young man who came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he wasn't given very long to live for Christ. And yet he's looking around at the congregation. He's looking at his own life and he says, the Lord's given me so many years and I'm wasting them all. Sinning. Maybe it's not sin. Maybe, maybe it's just things that don't matter in life. And he says, must I go and empty handed? Um, one of my fears is meeting my Savior one day. And he's given me up to this point 28 years. I still feel like I'm 22. Um, but he's given me 28 years. Um, and, and, and my fear is that one day I'll stand before him and look back and I'll see more waste than I will see a, a gift of service to my Savior. Um, but Paul couldn't say that about the Philippians. For 10 years, Ten years you've labored with me in the gospel. You're zealous for the things of God. Uh, can he say that about you? Can he say that about me? He praises them for their past. And then in verse 6, he moves to the future. As he's considering uh, the great start that they've had, ten years of faithfulness to God, he turns in verse 6 and he says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He turns to the future. In light of the good start they've had, in light of their strengths, it moves him to be confident. The idea of confident, it means to come to believe the certainty of something on the basis of being convinced. It means exactly what we think it is. He's he's convinced of this very thing, that God who started a work in you will complete it one day. Uh, I want to stop for a second. I want to, I know this is a uh, probably common knowledge to many of us, what is re- being referred to, but I just want to, a lot of times we quote verses like this and we have no verse, I guess, to, to put our finger on as to what he's talking about. So turn to John chapter six, John chapter six, John chapter six and verse 29. This is, again, just so we can put our finger on something so that we know what is the work he's talking about, what is the day he's referring to. Uh, John chapter 6 and verse 29 says, And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That is the work of God, that you believe in him whom, he, whom, whom, whom God has sent. Um, so, so when does this work start? Paul says, I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, well, when did it start? Well, it started when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you believed in him, Christ, whom was sent by God. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 8. Again, a very familiar verse, Romans chapter 8. I think these are some verses that we quote all the time. And yet when you stop and you just think about what is being said, it's so difficult to comprehend what he is saying. Um, Romans 8 and verse 28, Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be uh, the image of his, uh, sorry, that, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is the work 
um, that was started in the life of the believer when we come to a saving faith in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the, that's the work. That's the goal. When God saved you, you became essentially a construction project. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a, in a, in a moment. Um, but that, that word that Paul uses that, that where he says, um, I'm confident that Christ will perfect this work that he started in you. That word perfect is, it's a building term. It's literally building a building. If you look at it in Hebrews, it's, it talks about the tabernacle being built, erected. He's saying one day the project is going to be finished. The project is going to be done. But what's the project? The project is that you would become conformed to the image of Christ, that you would look more and more like Christ. We often quote verse 28. It's, it, it's a verse we love to quote. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things. Have you ever thought about that? He works together all things for good. All things. The loss of a child. The loss of a marriage. The loss of a loved one. The loss of our employment. The loss of our health. And yet, the things that this world would dread coming upon them, the Lord says, don't worry, Christian, I'm going to use that for good. And what's the good? The good is that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Some of us here, I know, are going through very difficult times. Uh, some of us are, 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 are having to watch um, a loved one suffer. Some of us are watching our children waste their life. Um, Maybe some of us are watching just difficulties in the family take place. And yet the Lord says, don't dread any of those things because I'm using it together for good. To cause you to, 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 to take place this work that is taking place in your life, that project that I've started where I'm going to renovate Nick Weaver and turn him into Christ, it's really not a renovation. It's really a complete teardown, isn't it? Or you're just tearing down out with the old in with the new. Um, but, but that's the whole idea. Everything that takes place in our life Paul says Christ is using it to form you more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thought. The things that this world dreads, I don't have to fear because I know one day God's going to make it out together for good. Might not be in this life, but in the next life, I'm going to look more like Christ. Um, I I remember, well, I remember, I'm in the middle of it actually. Um, But one thing that I pray um, a lot at work is that the Lord would help me learn the lessons he's trying to teach me quickly. Quickly is the really the emphasis of the idea. A lot of people, it's like the Lord is trying to teach certain people the, the same lesson. And because of their stubbornness, because of their sin, whatever the case is, it's like the Lord has to try over and over and over and over again. And yet I pray, Lord, I want to learn every lesson you have for me and I want to learn it quickly. I think of... Uh, you know, I think of just the difficulties in life. Uh, the Lord showed me recently that I have a problem with complaining. I, I never realized I had a problem with complaining before. It was UPS that the Lord used to teach me that lesson. Uh, COVID 2020, um, I've really learned that I have a problem with complaining. And I just say, Lord, I don't want to complain anymore. And I want to learn how not to complain because Christ never complained. Even if it meant him going all the way to the cross, I want to look like Christ in that way. And I want to learn how to do it. And Paul is saying, it's a beautiful idea what he's saying. He's saying, I'm confident. I've been convinced of this, that God who began a good work in you, 
He's going to finish the project. It's going to happen. And, and you could literally translate this word that he's going to carry through. Husbands, do you ever start a project at home and never finish it? Oh, my goodness. Maybe your wife buys a mirror and says, I want it on this wall. And you think, oh, easy. I'll do that Saturday. Uh, and then Saturday rolls around. And you're busy. Oh, next Saturday. I say that. I use a mirror because there's a mirror in our house that has been needed to be hanged for months now. Um, Maggie's so gracious. But, but anyways, the Lord, he's saying he doesn't start a project and leave it unfinished. He's going to finish it one day. But that project is taking place today. And today, the Lord wants you to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So search your hearts. What is it? And it shouldn't be hard. I can think of like a thousand things within me right now that don't resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. But those are the things that the Lord wants to remove from your life or to work through. He's going to finish the project one day. But notice, so he praises them for all of these things. He tells you what his position is. And then he finishes in verse 7. And he starts talking about his progression. His progression. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. But verse 7, he says, It's only right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I have you in my heart. Now, I want to stop for a second. I have you in my heart. Who's Paul talking to? He said the Philippians, obviously. Um, But the Philippians here, are they Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. Remember, we looked at the the background of the book. There was no synagogue in Philippi. You only needed 10 Jewish men to form a Jewish synagogue. So that tells you there probably wasn't a lot of Jewish men around. And yet here is Paul. He's writing to these Gentiles, and he says, I have you in my heart. There is an example of the work of God in the life of Paul, because there was a day where he wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. There was a day where he viewed them as the scum of the earth. And yet here he is. He's writing to them. And he says, I have you in my heart. But I want to think for a moment, what does that mean, in my heart? Um, when we use the word heart in our culture, we would say that the heart is really uh, the seat of our affections, okay? The seat of our affections. So when Ben Ramey, every night, I'm sure, he looks at Grace and he says, Grace, I love you with all my heart. It's a good line, okay? It's a good line. I love you with all my heart. What Ben would be saying in that context is, Grace, all of my affections are yours. I haven't reserved a side of it for someone else. They're all yours. Okay? Now, that's how we would use it. But in the Greek culture, that's really not the idea. The the heart was not the, the seat of our affections and only that. The heart was, in their culture, it was also the seat of their personality. It was their will, the things that they desired. It was a part of who they were. Okay? So... I was trying to think of an example in Scripture that would be a good way to illustrate this. And the best one I could think of, do you remember in Daniel when uh, the the King Nebuchadnezzar, he sets before them, um, I think, yeah, Daniel. Um, he sets before them all, all of the uh, the food that was offered to idols, and he wants them part, to partake in it and so on and so forth. But what does it say about Daniel? It says, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Okay. The whole idea is the heart was his will. It was his desire. And he made, a, he purposed in his heart that no matter what happened, I was not, I'm not going to eat that food. Okay. And that's the whole idea. So when Paul says, I feel this way about you because I have you in my heart, what he's saying is, it's like you're, you're part of who I am. 
in a sense. And it's really difficult to really understand why Paul would say this, but he answers why he says that in the next clause. He says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all have become partakers of grace with me. He says, I feel this way about you. It's like you're within my very heart and soul. It's, it's, it's like, uh, the things that I do also would resemble the things that you do because they participated in the gospel together. They had a common bond, a common goal. And he says, even in my imprisonment, you have partaken in it with me. You say, well, Paul, they're not there in prison. How can you say you've partaken of, of my chains, my imprisonment with me? Well, he says later on, he says, look at verse 19. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, speaking of his, his uh, time in, in prison, through your prayers. Through your prayers. Can you imagine Epaphroditus probably came to Paul after having not heard from them for six years, and he says, Paul, we pray for you every day. Your name comes up multiple times on Wednesday night. Has anyone ever come to you and said, I pray for you every day? I mean, I, 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 it happened to me once or twice, and it's one of the best feelings in the world. And yet here is Paul, perhaps wondering if maybe they've forgotten about him, but he says, we pray for you every day. And he says, because of that, you've partaken in the gospel with me. But one more thing I want to point out to you. He says that his, his, his work in the gospel was twofold. And your work in the gospel should be twofold as well. He says, you've participated with me um, in my imprisonment, but also, look at what he says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You think, okay, what in the world does that mean? The defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul, I thought we were just to give the gospel. But he says, no, you also participated with me in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense there, it will sound very familiar to you, is the word apologia, okay? And that is the word we get the word apologetics from, which is the defense of something, right? And so what Paul is saying is, my ministry is not just to share the gospel with the lost, but it's also to defend the gospel. It's to defend the gospel from any critics, anyone who would suggest it's not true, anyone who would suggest something else, I'm going to defend the gospel against that. And he says, you've participated in it with me in that way. But then he says, in the confirmation of the gospel. What does that mean, the confirmation of the gospel? Uh, the confirmation, that word, if you were to look it up, it means to cause something to be known as certain, to establish the truth in the hearts of those who believe it. So it's not just the sharing of the gospel leading someone to salvation. They've believed the gospel, but now you're confirming it in their heart. You're establishing it in their heart. It would speak to us more of perhaps discipleship. And yet Paul is saying, you've participated with me for 10 years, not just in the sharing of the gospel, but in the defending and confirming of the gospel as well. What what things Paul praises them for? Are we faithful in that in these things? I don't know about you, but for me, it's really difficult to even get to the point where I'm sharing the gospel openly. And and I've said it before: the stars have to align. I have to be at the right place at the right time with no errands to do, with 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 ahead of schedule, whatever the case is. They have to fall on their knees and say, Nick, what must I do to be saved? Almost. It's not that bad, okay? But Paul was so um, zealous, the Philippians were so zealous for the gospel, they continued to stand in the gospel in that way, to confirm the gospel, to share it, to to establish it in the hearts of these people. Um, 
And the question we have to ask is, uh, would Paul be able to say these things about the Bible Chapel of Shawnee? What would he say? What would he say? Uh, what are we zealous, of, zealous for? What is it that we're investing our time and energy in? What consumes our prayers? Is it the things of this world? Or is it the lost souls around us that are going to enter into eternity? And yet Paul praises them for these things. Yes, you supported me in the gospel, but you shared with me in the gospel. We've worked side by side, laboring for the souls around us. Would Paul be able to say that about us? Our Father in heaven, we do just uh, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for uh, the gospel. We thank you that uh, it is the gospel that has uh, the power to, to save each and every one of us. But Father, we pray that you would help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul would say in Romans 1, not only was he unashamed of the gospel, he says that he's ready to give the gospel as well. Father, we pray that that would be our heart as well, that that would be our testimony. Father, if we're not faithful in sharing the gospel as the Philippians were, Father, we pray that you would help us to do so. Help us to be zealous over the things that matter. Father, help us not to meet the Lord Jesus Christ one day empty-handed. We thank you for today. Uh, We thank you for the fellowship that will follow. We just ask for your blessing upon it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.